This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over a billion people visit it every day. But what's it like working there? I talked with product designer Paola Maricelli to find out. At Facebook, there is such a range of opportunities to make an impact. So many interesting problems to solve, so many different product areas. It's really up to you as a designer where you see yourself making the most impact for people. I've had the opportunity to work on instant articles, Facebook Live, and other video products. And there is such a tremendous amount of thought and hard work being put into every single part of the experience, which gives designers a wealth of opportunities to make an impact and also improve our own craft. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes to both functionality and customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to not only find that domain name that you're looking for, but get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Speaking of saving money, everything in our store this week is 20% off. Uh, If you don't know about our store, you go to revisionpath.com forward slash store. It's a really great time to grab a Revision Path t-shirt, a mug, a tote bag, or a hoodie. I just copped one of the shirts myself. Really great quality. Might get a hoodie too. I mean, it's 20% off. Why not? Grab yourself something today. The sale's going to end on Sunday. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 39 patrons for a combined total of $268 per month. Again, I want to thank everybody that has pledged their support and their appreciation for the show through Patreon. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you like the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening to any of the interviews, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes, free revision path goodies. You'll even get access to our special patrons-only podcast. Uh, we've actually got an episode that's coming out tomorrow, which details my recent trip out to Menlo Park, California at Facebook headquarters. You're only going to hear that on the podcast, or if you want to get in on it, definitely become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and it's a really great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with graphic designer Sella Lewis. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Sella Lewis. I'm a graphic designer. I currently work at the Education Trust, which is a nonprofit that focuses on raising achievement for low-income students and students of color from K-12 all the way through higher ed. I work on a variety of projects here at the Education Trust, from their uh, advocacy work on the Hill, which which is where we're based in Washington, D.C. I work on the website as well, so the interactivity. I also work on animation for the Ed Trust and anything in between, from wall graphics that you see all the way down to business cards. My hand is on it somehow. Wow, that's pretty expansive. That's a lot. It can be. It really can be. I guess I'm a person who likes to flex a lot of muscles, and mm-hmm. uh, Ed Trust is sort of a place where if you're very good at your job, they give you more to do, <laughs> <laughs> and you make a decision of uh, what you're going to embrace. But I luckily, after a few years, got some help, so I wasn't by myself the entire time. Mm-hmm. Our production assistant, Allie, joined us a few years ago, and she's been great. So what is a, a typical day like? I mean, if you're designing and working on so many things, anything from print to web, to interactive, what's a regular day like? A regular day isn't as hectic as it sounds um, because everybody is very organizational. Like we, we have organizational work plans that we all participate in at least once a year. 
Then we have divisional work plans that work through. And then we have weekly meetings within teams. We all sort of know what is happening and how things are moving so that when you sit down at your desk and you know your marching orders, so to speak, you can then parse out the days or parse out the hours in your day to dedicate to a certain part of the workflow, depending on priority. So I have my wall, a um, kind of opaque glass that has a custom calendar on it. That's basically like my whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And then it's broken, it's color coded for each division. So higher ed is blue, K-12, purple, and so and so. And so I parse out the I'm working on and color code it based on that division. And then say for that day, so today is say the third. So that day I'm going to work on some board book covers. Um, and I'm working on the teachers of color paper. And then I'm going to update our style guide. And so I decide how much of that will get, actually get done. Because, you know, once you hit the ground, things may change, but you sort of have like a map in your mind about what you're going to work on. It gives you some order. I firmly believe that every designer benefits from some order in their life. You know, your sandbox can be simple, your sandbox can be crazy, but you need to stay inside your sandbox. So that's sort of my, my walls on my sandbox is just sort of having this calendar and having some sense of order so I can sit down and really sort of let my imagination sort of take its place. So So how did you first get started with the Education Trust? About five or six years ago, I was a freelancer and I realized that I hated it. I really hated chasing people down for money. I really hated losing sleep when I was going to get paid, when I was going to pay my rent. I was just down to such so little money. And I also am a social butterfly. Like I realized that I don't like working at home alone for too long. I get kind of feral if I don't socialize with others. And so I started applying for in-house jobs back again. And I kind of had been burned somewhat by that early in my career since I, I kind of have a eccentric personality, I guess is the best way to describe it. And so I just really wasn't sure if I was going to be able to fit in, so to speak, in another nonprofit. But I went ahead and applied through actually one of my mentors, Lorenzo Wilkins, who I hope you'll you'll speak to as well. And he referred me to the then managing editor here, Cheryl Fields. And we just had we just hit it off really well. I understood the mission really well, given some of my background. And I understood sort of what was needed for the next phase, two phases of Ed Trust. And it just was a really good match from the beginning where I knew where we were and where we needed to go and sort of be really patient and diligent and work within a team and understand their needs. And every project, every opportunity was an opportunity to show that they could do more than what we were currently doing. And that we're at a place now where we're really innovative. We're doing some innovative stuff in terms of a 20-year-old education advocacy, education policy organization. We're doing some really progressive work. And I'm very proud of the stuff that we've done here. Where do you kind of see yourself going into the future with Education Trust? I'm actually kind of looking to transition into a whole different sector. I'm actually looking to move out of Washington and, and move up to New York because, I mean, I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 16 years. I went to Howard University, so I'm going to school here. I basically lived most of my adult life here. And mm-hmm. I feel like New York is the next big step for me because I just don't feel as intimidated by it like I was when I was much younger. You know, growing up in Milwaukee, where I'm originally from, New York City was like Emerald City to me. It was like, oh, I went to New York. Oh, my God. And as I start to travel the world and see all these wonderful other amazing cities, New York started to feel like, OK, I can handle this. I think I know what I'm doing here, but I, I had to give myself a laundry list of reasons why I needed to pursue this, not just to be in New York. Mm-hmm. So I've been pursuing this for something like two years, actually. And it has not been easy because a lot of the conventions of what I do as a not as an in-house nonprofit designer are often not seen as translatable in other sectors and making that case for it can be really challenging. And I hate to bring this up, but sometimes there's the factor of race and gender and the assumptions of what black women creatives can do can play its part. And I try to be as diplomatic about that. So I'll just leave it there. Okay. That's where I'm going. However, to be positive, my management here has been very supportive of this. They understand this is a dream that they, it's not about me leaving the education trust. It's about uh-huh. me leaving Washington and that I've grown out of Washington. 
as long as I'm here and dedicated to the mission and to the work, that other aspect of my dream will not be compromised. I won't compromise either one. Then, then they're supportive. So that is a huge relief, which makes this actually a very special place to work. Not many places can you open up about your dream of moving away, and they're supportive to some extent. So that's why I'm really uh, dedicated to being here in some ways, but still you know, trying to make the move when it's right and doing it in a way that I'm comfortable doing it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's really super progressive. Every place that I've been where I've even opened up just an inkling about, you know, what I want to do in the future and the fact that that future might not involve staying where I currently am, mm-hmm. I've gotten five. Yeah. So- <laughs> yeah. It's, it, and it's scary. It is super, super scary. Yeah. And so, I think that's why this place has an incredible amount of loyal people and people who do extraordinary work for that reason. There are very few places I've been where I am measured purely on my skill as a designer. Like nobody cares how many tattoos I have. Nobody cares how I wear my hair. Nobody cares what I'm wearing. There have been days where I'm wearing like Nike blazers and like a jumpsuit and (laughs) my hair is in a head wrap. Nobody cares. It was like, yeah, we need you to update this data because it's important and we know you can do it. That's a very empowering place to be. But then once you're there, you're like, okay, what's the next step now? Like I got all these, you know, great muscles flexed. What's what's the next big thing? You know, it's not particularly fair or just to only be really incredible in one space. It's like, how can you translate that to another space? So it's not incredibly fair or just to just be incredible in one space. Mm-hmm. That is such a good quote. <laughs> Thank you. That is such a good quote. Yeah. So New York, yeah. why New York in, in particular? Just because of that, that sort of uh, notion that you had before that it was kind of an unattainable thing. No, absolutely not. Like that's dead. I think that's, yeah. that's really where I had to, to, once I killed that dream, New York suddenly became an answer to a problem. And that problem was ceiling. And one of that, the ceiling that I'm reaching is that this is not a negative criticism of designers in Washington. There are an incredible amount of talented designers. But what we don't really flex is that writer muscle. We don't really flex the political awareness muscle. When you go to New York, you meet designers who are working on logos, but they're writing books, mm-hmm. right? And they're you know, presenting lectures and they're contributing to the culture and to the, uh, the, the history of our craft. And that's cultivated in New York City. Like you bounce an idea off of someone in New York and they know exactly what you're talking about. And then they bounce an idea back to you. And it's this whole volley of growth. Whereas I feel like sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge. And that I don't think that's because it's Washington. I just think that it's just not cultivated where it is cultivated in New York. And so that's sort of the space I want to be in, particularly because I, I'm offering ideas and ways of thinking about graphic design that are just not out there and are really well invested in and supported. And I'm trying to find my avenue. In addition to New York, it's just like an awesome place to live. You know, you've got culture, you've got art, you've got theater, you've got fashion, you've got the business of fashion. You've got people who are very serious about commercial art and design, not just people who see it as frivolous. That's the next step for me. You know, as much as I have enjoyed living in Washington, D.C., people tend to treat design here like it's a bow that you put on all the hard work and to make the case that it has any more importance than that is a lot of labor and you have to ask yourself how much more labor do I want to go through to say no this really matters and someone's like yeah I get it that that's nice so that's just the next step for me so it's more about being in a space where you're able to really contribute to and document the culture absolutely and it, and it's less about being just like a workhorse absolutely yeah is that's it and and that's actually been one of the hurdles i run into is on paper i look like i could just sit down on a mac and just do your work do the work for somebody yeah that may be true but i want to do more than that and right. so making the case for that requires flexing some other muscles and finding the right opportunity and so that's just it's taking longer than well, no, I wouldn't say it took, it's not taking any longer than I thought. It's unfortunately taking as long as I thought it would. It's interesting because I don't know if you can really even put a timetable on these kinds of things, especially because our industry is changing yeah. so much. What's required out of us has changed so much, even over just the past five years or so. You know, titles change, requirements yeah. change, tools change. 
So I can see why it could take a while. Yeah. Because we're always constantly having to keep up and adapt and make sure that we're one step ahead or, or you know what I mean? It's, it's a lot. You know, you know, you're absolutely right about that. The more I think about it. Thank you for that insight, because I think it's just because I'm very driven. You know, I'm very driven to succeed. I'm very driven to not prove people wrong that I sort of gave myself this timeline of like, OK, two years, Sella. What are you doing? I even have monthly progress reports that I give myself just so I have it. So just so I don't lose track. Like I always I'm a big dreamer, but I'm often I ensconce my dreams in like a lot of practicality just so I feel like I have some control over it. But, you know, you're right. Like I just asked myself, OK, if I have to write another if I have to do some work on it another year, another two years, that's fine. And maybe it's to your point. It's like things are constantly changing, like the roles and expectations of our work constantly shifts. And so I'm going to have to adapt to that, too. And doing both can be very difficult. Yeah. One thing I've started to do with my projects is is try to give them an end date, because I think, you know, when you're working somewhere or when you're working on a project or something and I'm not I'm not saying this for a vision pass so for people that are listening. <laughs> I'm not saying that I'm like bringing this to an end or anything, but with with, you know, smaller projects, maybe like a year or six months or, you know, even commitments that I might have with organizations or things. I try to give myself an end date because there's so many other opportunities out there. The industry is changing. There's other things that I want to do personally. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's so much about being like bogged down or tied down to one specific thing. But it's, you know, as designers, we have this this uh, this need to solve problems. Yeah. And there's so many problems out there that need to be solved. Why would you want to kind of stay in one place just doing one thing? You know, it's almost uh-huh. like like Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. How long are you going to keep pushing that boulder up Mm -hmm. before it falls back down and then you got something else? So (laughs) that's how I kind of try to look at it with projects. Like I've done some projects where it's like, okay, I'm only going to do this for a year or I get into something. I'm like, I'm only going to do this for two years. I'm only going to do this for six months because then at least that lets me know. It gives me a constraint to say, how much can I really sort of get done within this time frame? And if I feel like it's more, maybe I'll extend it. If I feel like, you know what? I'm good. That's something I really had to reconcile with myself about stopping, mm-hmm. about getting to a place where I say, you know what? I've done pretty good here. <laughs> let's, let's go on to something else, which can be tough. Like, it sounds like you're a type A person like I am. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that kind of overachiever. I always have to get in there and achieve and make stuff happen. And it's like, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> yeah. This is good. Yeah, that's the tough thing. So. I definitely get it. You know, knowing when to retreat and say, you know what, this is not worth my mental and physical, you know, it's, co- it's costing my mental and physical health. So let me retreat. It's funny, like this morning, I was editing a piece that I'm going to publish in October about what Sylvia Harris's legacy means to me. Oh. Yeah, because she was like my light for so many years. But her death is also something that is, is marked in my mind, too, because she was so young. She was 57 when she died mm-hmm. of some cardiac arrest. And that always sat with me. It was like, why would someone so young die so abruptly? And my suspicion was then and is now is because of the, what we expect of Black women and how we always put others' needs before our own and to do anything else in that is considered selfish. And so there's a part of me that always says, Sally, you don't have to be type A all the time. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need to sit down and be quiet for your own sake. And so I do listen to that voice in my head. So the part of me that says, but if you're not going to be in New York, you're going to be miserable. Like, <laughs> but you also don't want to be miserable in New York, right? You don't want to take a job that will not accommodate the salary that you need in order to thrive. You will not mm-hmm. take a role that will not allow you to have a leadership opportunity that will allow you to develop staff. You will not take a job that won't allow you to be able to continue to write and contribute to the culture and, and inject that into the work. That let's think about the sociopolitical context of what we're producing right now. You know, that if I can't have that, then I'm not going to settle for whatever somebody's giving me just because they're preying on my dream of wanting to live in New York. I'm old enough to know better. I mean, I'm 35 and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to spend my 40s miserable in Manhattan. I <laughs> don't want to do that. Right. For those that are listening, can you just kind of briefly describe who Sylvia Harris is? I mean, I I know she is. I just, you know, for the people that are listening, can you kind of tell them who she is and why she's so important? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Sylvia Harris was a 
art director, information architect, and graphic designer who founded Citizen Research and Design. And uh, she's notable for several key things. One of them was the 2000 census form. She designed that. She and her team researched and designed the 2000 census form. And it got in a much higher response rate than any previous form that had been done. And, and so much so they asked her to come back and de- design the next census form. She was a pioneer in designers having a, a social impact, working in nonprofits, working in governments. Um, that work was seen as boring, not particularly sexy. Now, she advocated for, me, for insisting that that work get done. And as a result, you have more, many more women of color like myself working for a nonprofit and injecting that same sort of passion. Like, this stuff matters and here's how. So that is her legacy. AIGA... They have honored her with an AIGA medal posthumously, and there is a, a scholarship award in her name that is given to recipients who exercise a design solution for social good. So that is her impact. That is her legacy. One thing that you mentioned, and I, I know you kind of skated by it a little bit earlier, but you brought it up again with Sylvia Harris, is kind of the assumption of what Black women creatives can do, or I guess the maybe the capacity might be a better a better way to put it. Can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, because it's something that, again, through my website in a more composed way, so I don't come off just kind of like upset about it for no reason, is trying mm-hmm. to understand why there's such, not just low percentages of, you know, women art directors, but women of color, specifically black women. Why do we have such low numbers and why is it hard for us to break through and I often interrogate the external factors, not just the in- internal factors of lack of confidence or <laughs> lack of self-advocacy or lack of ability, because I see so many examples of that is not the case. There are a lot of women, Black women, who are leaning in to these opportunities, that they're just not given to them. And I want to interrogate why. So I'm, I'm still sort of not going to you know, fall down on this hard line and say, well, this is why it is, even though I know it is racism and sexism, but I want to articulate what that, how that actually plays out in our industry in specific ways. And so that is really what that statement is, is questioning our ability because the numbers don't add up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I started Revision Path, um, and this, this is something I think I talked about a little bit on maybe I think the 100th episode, but when I started Revision Path, it was because I knew that there were black designers out there that were doing really great, phenomenal work mm-hmm. that were just not getting recognized. And I don't even want to say getting recognized at the same level as their you know, non-black peers, but just weren't getting recognized, period. Yeah. We just weren't seen. We weren't profiled. We weren't interviewed in any sort of way. And because the design media reflected that you know, back onto us that we're not even a part of this. It's like, well, we're out here. We're doing the work. We're putting our blood, sweat, and tears in this industry. Why aren't we being kind of showcased? One of the main people that I had in mind as inspiration when I started doing this was a black woman. She was our our 100th episode of Sarah Honey Young, Mm -hmm. who I knew was doing, I mean, killer work for, you know, MTV, BET, Viacom, Vibe, Mm -hmm. doing phenomenal work. And I'm like, how is she not on the cover of, you know, communication arts and she's doing work that's just as good as insert other designer. Here. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's that, yeah. Being set to another standard or, and so that's sort of the work I want to interrogate a little bit more and understand more and doing so requires looking at social scientists, looking at, you know, you know, the, the way they've cultivated an understanding around black women's labor, black women's art, mm-hmm. commerce and business and learning those histories and then injecting the history of the contemporary history of the, the communications, the designer. And then that's where you start to connect the dots a little bit more. So in my piece about Sylvia Harris, I cited Melissa Harris Perry's Sister Citizen. And I read this book front and back. It's an academic piece, but it really sort of understands how Black women feel about being a political person, both racialized and gender, not just who we vote for and whether we vote Democrat or Republican. It's not about, it's not a civics lesson. It's really sort of understanding how we internalize our value system. And so that has been really instrumental in helping me understand not just 
the legacy of this woman who I've never met, but had this incredible impact on my life, but then my own work as well. You know, the own way, my own way I process my work and do my job and how I process myself as a black woman, right? Like, like you, Maurice, it's like, well, all right, I got to do 10 things today. And it's like, you know what? Maybe I don't. Maybe, maybe I should just go on vacation. Maybe I should just sit around and watch Penny Dreadful. Like, I should just give myself that space to do it because of everything I have to deal with. It's so hard to be black. And it's so, it's just, so that is the part that I sort of, you know, have to listen to. And that really helps. So, because it kind of helps me understand the outrage (laughs) when you see all these talented black designers and they're just not set at the same level or you get one, right? We're going to give you one. We're going to give you Sylvia Harris Mm -hmm. and we're going to wait till she's dead for you to honor her. And it's just like, I don't, (laughs) I'm sorry, maybe you need to edit that out, but like, no, 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 no. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> but that's the stuff that I kind of want to interrogate. Like, that's not good enough. Mm-hmm. There are too many Sylvia Harris's out here. No more excuses. When I interviewed Emory Douglas back in 2014, this this was way like early, early days of Revision Pad. I think he was maybe like episode like 14, I think. I think he was episode 14. And when I, when I encountered Emory Douglas, I had known about his work for a long time because I had seen it growing up you know, reading about the Black Panther and everything. I'm, I'm from Selma. Mm. So I'm very familiar with, you know, the civil rights movement. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the first generation outside of the march, basically. Uh. And so I grew up seeing his work. I knew who he was. And I finally was, you know, getting the chance to interview and talk to this guy. And at the time, I was seeing his art on, like, skateboard decks. That's actually how I ended up connecting with him through the interview, I saw his work on a skateboard deck. I found out the person who, I guess, licensed the work, who then put me in touch with Emery. And we had a, a, a like a, I don't know, maybe like a two-hour phone conversation that ended up being what the interview was. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I we touched on in that interview was kind of that lack of, I guess, recognition for the work that he did. Because I was gushing in the interview. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, when I think about designers and artists that are so closely tied to social movements yeah. i'm like you're like you're like a contemporary i don't want to say like norman rockwell that's probably you know not that the best comparison but you know what i mean like your your work and the time period in which it came about are so intrinsically mm-hmm. linked mm-hmm. and i don't know why you're not in every design textbook why you're not speaking all around the world and he was sort of speaking to me about how he felt like he got more recognition for his work overseas than he did here in the u.s wow. After that interview, I think that's when he started to, I guess, get noticed because then he got an AIGA medal yeah. and then he's part of these documentaries and things like that. So his work is getting out there more. He's doing more speaking, which I think is great. But it's sort of like you want to be able to give the flowers to people while they can still smell exactly. them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was actually what was heartbreaking when I, I went to that gala when he when he won the award. And it was mm-hmm. there was a little awkward moment when he got on stage because he didn't really it almost seemed like he didn't know who we were. Like he was like, I'm happy to be up here at um A uh G A and it just kind of felt really awkward. Like Yeah. Ooh. That was that moment. I was like, why? <laughs> Why wait this long? I struggled with that for quite a while was, do I talk about this? Because mm-hmm. this seems not right. So I just had to kind of like, this, my website was this opportunity to be like, no, this needs to be said because no one else will say it. No one else is going to say it. No one else is going to call out the big elephant in the room. And there's a problem here. And we need to be able to address it. But if more of us don't speak up, nothing will get done. It can't just be like one crazy lady on the internet you know, saying whatever, you know, it's just that to me was an indication that we have a problem and we need to be able to, to call it out, mm-hmm. to call it out and hold ourselves accountable to that. So that's part of what you're doing here, Maurice, is really addressing a problem with a solution. And I want to get to that space where we're, we're coming to solutions, but doing it in a way that isn't sugarcoating it and isn't making anybody feel comfortable with saying, no, this is a problem. Let's fix it. Right. When I started Revision Path, I wanted to make sure also that I wasn't being I guess, overly antagonistic. Yeah. Because, and to, I guess, you know, kind of sidetrack a little bit with the whole diversity in tech angle that we've seen so much in documentaries and specials and conferences and blog posts and da 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 And it just felt like what I was getting from the diversity in tech angle at the time when I started Revision Path was a lot of anger. 
I mean, I think rightful anger, maybe some of it misplaced, but, you know, I think rightful anger at the situation, Mm -hmm. that the fact that it's, you know, this inequality exists, but it didn't really feel like there were a lot of people actually just recognizing and showcasing what's already out there, but more so wagging the finger at everyone that wasn't doing it, which you can do that. But then what else, what are you putting up, you know, kind of as a balance to that? And so what I wanted to do with a vision path is I didn't want to just wag my finger at agencies and companies that weren't hiring black designers. Certainly there's opportunities to do that. But I also wanted to show, hey, here are the designers out here that are actually doing the work. Because as I have, you know, talked to people and particularly with students and with educators, a big thing that comes up is that they didn't learn anything about black designers in school. Not a single thing, not not even about a single designer. I knew about Sylvia Harris, of course, through AIGA, but then I, I remember she also wrote a piece in uh, The Education of a Graphic Designer by Stephen Heller, where she talks about kind of the, the phases and, the, and the, the periods of African-American design, graphic design, and what it means to kind of search for that black design aesthetic, mm-hmm. what that means. Mm-hmm. And it's like, is that it? Yeah. I'm sure there has to be. I mean, I'm, I know that there are more books out there by black designers and... <laughs> And things like that. I mean, it's 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 a small number. They're out there. But being able to contribute not just to the issue, but also to the culture and the history exactly. to say, hey, here are these people that are out here doing it. Listen to their stories because you're not going to hear them anywhere else. Yeah. Or they may not even have an opportunity or get the chance to tell their story anywhere else. You know, I tell a lot of the people I have on the show that about 95 percent of the guests, this is their very first interview. Mm-hmm. No one has ever talked to them about their work at all in a professional capacity to the point where it's in their own voice and they can speak exactly to what the their motivations are, what their struggles are, what their triumphs are. Nobody's asking them that. And so as a designer that wants to come up in the industry, whether you're a student or, you know, even uh, like a high school student or something like that, you want to be able to see yourself reflected in the industry that you want to go into. It's that whole thing of you can't be what you don't see. Yeah. Yeah, that, I really love that. And I thank you for that segue, by the way, because you reminded me I wanted to bring up 50 Design Thinkers, my series on, on my website, for that very purpose of, you know, I was a graduate of Harvard University in 2005, you know, so I went to an HBCU. And so I had gotten accustomed to some aspect of the Black aesthetic through the arts, you know, through the traditional arts, but through commercial design was where it, it kind of, you know, you cultivated your work, your, you know, your skill set. And, you know, my professors were black, you know, black women, black men, very accomplished, had MFAs, PhDs, really talented, really smart people. So I felt really, really good about what I learned. But when it came to like working black designers, specifically working black women designers who were older, like Sylvia Harris was it. Like, and that felt really daunting to me. You know, you know, when they live in Washington, D.C., you can go to the National Archives. Yeah. You can get a library card. And so I thought, okay, well, the National Archives... They're going to have like a book or something. And you know what I found? I found like an old Time magazine letter that somebody mailed and said, hey, have you thought about all these other like black graphic designers? And they were just listing people they knew. And like that was it. (laughs) And this was 2005. Wow. So it was like, we need a book. We need something. But I didn't really know what that book was going to be because it felt too daunting. It felt like it would require too much travel, like how far back in history did I want to go? Like, I just didn't know. And so in the last year, I've sort of narrowed down the criteria a lot more to make it more manageable because the bar that I'm clearing is so low where I just want to find one Black graphic designer in every state in the country, uh, have them tell their story, you know, have them think, you know, tell me how they think about their work and how they process their work, not just the finished piece. I want to find someone in Montana, in Idaho, in Wyoming, in in Oregon. And so my first entry is Rob Lewis, who is an art director um, out of Portland, Oregon. Um, He uh, used to work at Wyden and Kennedy, and um, he pretty much freelances right now. Uh, He and his photography partner, they have their own sort of small freelance company, and they operate within that kind of really informed aesthetic. And he was my first entry. He knew me from, uh, you know, a handful of other, you know, networks of people. And we just had a really great conversation, just like you did. You know, we sat for hours and we talked, really understood what this was about um, and what this endeavor was. So I'm hoping through your podcast, Maurice, that we can get the word out that I want to find these people. And I'm sure they're out there. 
you know, we sort of, when we settle on the idea that blackness only exists in certain places, we never take the time to think where else, where, where else they could live, you know, you know, right, growing right. up in the Midwest where I did, you know, I, I'm a product of the Northern migration, you know, people didn't just stop at Chicago and Detroit. They went on to Milwaukee, you know, my parents are from there. So, you know, to live out here on the East Coast, as long as I have, and people are still stunned when they find out where I'm from is very disappointing. So I want to kind of use this vehicle, not just to expand Black graphic designers' voices, but expand Black voices as well. Black voices in creativity, Black voices in cultivating art. So know that we go anywhere. Like, we have wanderlust just like everybody else. We want to seek out our fortune wherever we want to pursue it. And so that sometimes means maybe looking for talented Black designers in spaces where we don't normally look for them, which is maybe military bases or places of worship or nonprofit or government organizations. We tend to often look in like these typical spaces of art schools, design schools, or art studios or design studios. We don't really think about all these other spaces which people are coming up with ways to be creative. Um, and so that's sort of where I want to keep looking and digging. So there will be a bit of a researcher in me doing this, but it's it's to the point of finding those voices because I, I'm interested in stories. I want to know, you know, who you are and how you got here and, and what you make. Tell me, you know, that's that's what I'm looking for. Well, certainly I want to help out with that any way I can. And if there are people that are listening that might be black designers in the Pacific Northwest, Montana, Idaho, Definitely reach out to me, reach out to Sailor. I mean, we'll have your, your contact information at the end of the interview because we want to we know who you are and what you're doing and what the work is that you're doing. So please let us know. Yes, thank you. Thank you. When I talked with Cheryl Miller, uh, Cheryl D. Well, I'm sorry, Cheryl Holmes is her maiden name, but it's Cheryl D. Holmes Miller. When I spoke with her, she was the subject of my Where Are the Black Designers presentation that I gave at South by Southwest last year. I gave it at How Design this year. Mm-hmm. And she was a, a designer in the 70s and 80s. She was attending Pratt Institute. And she wrote this really scathing thesis. I don't want to say scathing. I don't like that when people refer to black folks' work as always being visceral yeah, and scathing yeah. when it's just right. us telling our truth. But she did this, this great thesis about like the, the lack of black designers in the industry and the factors that contribute to that. And she did interviews. And I mean, there's statistical research in there. There's psychological research in there. Mm-hmm. Print Magazine picked it up. They published a piece in 1987 called Black Designers Missing in Action, which, you know, kind of took what she said in her thesis and just kind of encapsulated it into an article. I actually have the PDF. I can send, let me, let me send that PDF to you in case you haven't read that. Okay. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Let's, let's change, let's exchange notes here and see if we can get some more resources. Oh, absolutely. And so AIGA picked that up. They picked up that article and wrote like a 1990 journal article about it, which then grew into this symposium that they did in 1991 where they did a survey. They surveyed like creative firms. They surveyed companies. They surveyed freelancers. They kind of get an idea of what is it that can be done in the industry to contribute to, I guess, a more just industry for everyone. Mm-hmm. And there were three things. There was a, you know, they said it needs to be more of like a mentorship program. There needs to be job programs and there needs to be educational opportunities. So basically we can all kind of rise up to the same level. Well, mm-hmm. after that, nothing really happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like nothing really happened. And it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I volunteer with AIGA through the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force. And I remember one of the first things I asked when I joined was if they still had that information. Oh, no, I don't think we can find it. I'm like, <laughs> really? You've got archives of all this other stuff. Uh-huh. And this one thing you can't find, that is so bizarre. Yeah. I wonder how that happened. Yeah. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. And I mean, other organizations have tried to kind of get a bead on what the industry is. A list apart did this survey from 2007 to 2011 that was, you know, a survey for people who make websites. But even then, it's a very limited scope because it's basically just a list apart audience, which are largely upper middle class white yeah, people. Yeah, they are. Even though in the United part, States. Yeah. Yeah. And so. People can look at those survey results, but that is not indicative of the industry as a whole. It's not even really indicative of the industry now. Yeah. Because think about how much the web has changed from 2007 to 2011 (laughs) and then from 2011 to 2016. Yeah. And especially when not all design is done on the web. Yeah. Like, it's it's a lot. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. There's been, I feel like, these attempts to try to, like, I don't know, try to figure out what the problem is or, or how to talk about it. But 
every time it happens, it seems to kind of be in some state of arrested development. Yeah, yeah. And it's in and it's by design, it's not accidental. You know, we cultivate as long as we get to assert that this work is universal, we don't have to interrogate that that's actually wrong, that that's actually false. Right. One of the other big benefits I get from working at the Education Trust is because we advocate for a specific group of students. We advocate for low-income students and students of color. We talk about the demographics of those students, but we also ask ourselves how we could be better about talking about them, raising the issues and concerns, and getting past our assumptions. And we do that in a variety of ways. One of the ways is through our writer-in-residence, Karen Chenoweth, and she highlights what we call dispelling the myth schools. These are schools that have shown that they can teach students, low-income students and students of color, to high levels year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And for many years, we would award those students. I mean, this is not done to self-promote, really. It's not. I'm not trying to promote what EdTrust does. I'm just simply saying that I learn a lot from what my other colleagues do in their work. And what they do is, is first fundamentally say, these students exist. These schools exist. Progress is being made. The work is being done. Here is how it's done. So there's that one vein. All right. So just keep elevating and elevating the work that's already being done well. Great. Good job. Keep going. Then address the question of, okay, so their thinking was, oh, well, we don't have enough diversity because of lack of mentorship or lack of jobs or lack of this. Well, that is sort of like deficiency language. That sort of says, well, they, if they were, if they just had somebody who hovered over them, they would just be here. If they just yeah. had somebody who gave them a job, they would be here. Like that, that's all we're asking for, and that's not it at all. And it's very, it's very head-pattingly condescending. So, like, change your framework and where you see yourself in the role of making progress. Sometimes to be an ally means that you need to sit back and pass the mic. Mm-hmm. You need to pass the mic to somebody else who is of an expert. And that may not be you from a place of privilege. And we all have our own privileges, right? Like we all do. And we need to recognize them and pass the mic to somebody else who may, maybe they don't get that opportunity and let them voice what their concerns and needs are and listen to them and not just assert, well, it's because you don't have a job. Well, I'm not asking for a job. I have a job. I'm building a career. Okay. And that career growth is coming with some hurdles, so mm-hmm. that is really, that's some of the, the stuff that we're learning when we're listening to teachers of color. That's the stuff we're getting because we first listen to them. We pass the mic. We tell us. All right. So those, those are really very restorative, empowering kinds of like to be around people like that every day who are doing that kind of work and look at it systematically, like across the country, like they get past the city they live in and actually go find folks. It's just like you, you start feeding that back into your own work as a designer. You're like, well, what are we doing? We could be better at this. And so that's why I love working at the Education Trust. To you, what does it mean to be a designer today? I think it means forcing yourself to be a part of the social conversation. You can absolutely privilege the work if you are passionate. I don't think that will ever go away. I think loving Swiss style and loving Bauhaus, that doesn't make you complicit in anything. But doing so requires asking deeper conversations of like, why is that all we lean on? And why do we elevate that above all other styles and sensibilities? And interrogating that a little bit further and further and further. And so I think that that, that I think is what is important right now is in, and not just right now, because everybody's talking about it, like it's the issue du jour, but just as a contemporary communicator, Right. Because my biggest fear is that in two, three, five years, we're going to stop talking about diversity because it, you know, it's not the issue du jour. We're still going to be met with these challenges, but we're still speaking in a contemporary visual language. And we once Mm -hmm. again don't know how to have a contemporary conversation about the social issues that we're facing. And so I would like more designers to understand that they operate in a continually moving social aspect. And they need to flex other muscles besides just, oh, look at this cool logo I made. Or look at this great poster I did. Or I redesigned this like really complicated form. That's great. But if you want to like get into some bigger, deeper issues, you're going to have to interrogate some other aspects of yourself. That's dope. That is the dopest answer I have heard to that question, hands down. That we need to be part of the, 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 the continually moving social conversation. Because like you said about the fear that diversity and design to talk about it will kind of fade out of practice. Historically, that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Someone will talk about it for a few years and then it goes away. And then someone else brings it up and then it goes away. And even like when I reached out to Cheryl and talked to her for Where Are the Black Designers? I mean, she did that in 1985. Wow. 
she wrote, you know, I was four right. when she came, when she came out with that thing, when that happened, and, and you know, now I'm approaching her. You know, I'm also 35. I approach her now as a 30 something, and you know, she's in her 60s now. She's she's no longer a designer. She's a clergy woman, mm-hmm. and print magazine came back to her and and had her do an updated piece. It's in the I think it's in the summer edition of print magazine. She does like a a 30 year update on the piece that she wrote when she was a you know at oh, <laughs> Red Institute. So which is largely saying that the issue has been going on for 30 years. What's changed? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, oh my God. Yeah, that's, wow. That's a little sobering. Now that I'm putting it, <laughs> put it in that context, like it's, it is a, an issue that has been going on for a long time. And yeah, we keep addressing it. And I feel like if there's anyone that can come up with a solution to that problem, it's a designer. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, no, no. And that these are, this is, these are the things that keep me up at night sometimes. You know, like there's all this opportunity. We have all this power. We have all this influence. And we flex it in sometimes the, the most mediocre ways when it comes to these politically, you know, impactful ways. And we could be so much better, but it takes more of us. You know, that I think that's also part of it. More of us speaking up, more of us standing up, more and not always falling on the same accord, not always falling on the same line. Like you should hear some of the conversations that Diamond and I have. Like, it's like point counterpoint. Like, she and I are not always going to see it the same way. And that's okay, too. That mm-hmm. can also limit us as well. Not, um, you know, the narrative around marginalized people is that they almost form a united front. And that is completely false. Like, that is, right. that's unfair. And that's a way to kind of, like, simmer down the actual conversation. It's like, well, y'all don't know what y'all talking about. So let us know when you get it together. I was like, we don't have to. We don't have to get it together, so to speak. Because design... Uh, is pervasive and the solutions to those can be widely varied. They they may be urban planning, uh, but they may be user experience. They may be, you know, branding and communications. They may be art direction that looks at film and television. That's also one of those muscles I flex on diversity without pity is looking at the diversity of the casting of media that uses smart design. And by smart design, it could be cinematography. It could be really great production design. It could be great costumes. You know, not just great, like, yay, we checked off all these boxes. But, like, how did they put these characters in a context in which we looked at the way they adorn their bodies or where they adorn their homes as a reflection of their personality? That muscle that you need to flex and that you can't just say, well, let us know when you all, you Black creatives, have figured it out and have this one, like, you know, message that we all going to agree on. No, the way we actually do our work will be different, but we have to assert that in ways that are very creative in the, in like the big umbrella that is design. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because now I'm thinking of four television shows that are on the air right now that could almost be fitted into quadrants when you think about kind of the, the spectrum of the black experience. Mm-hmm. Like I think of Queen Sugar, I'm thinking of Atlanta, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Insecure, mm-hmm. the uh, Lisa Ray's new show, mm-hmm. and Blackish, mm-hmm. and how you've got something that might range from showing black people in a, a different socioeconomic environment that might be more indigent or poor, if you want to put it that way, lower class with Atlanta, to something that is clearly more upper middle class, you know, mother is a doctor kind of thing with yeah, Blackish. Yeah, and then you you know you look at how each of those shows are designed mm-hmm. and styled and maybe it's different because it's different networks but of course you've also got different black people giving their different points of view yeah. on what the black experience is to them in that context exactly. that's exactly it maurice that's something that i'm curious about as well when i look at a show like blackish a sense of you know steve jones was on a podcast talked about the black aesthetic and mm-hmm. how there were some shows i grew up with in the 90s that had a very clear black aesthetic martin had this very yeah. clear black aesthetic, not just on how they dress, but in just like their homes. Even if you went back to the Cosby show, just you know that black family portrait. Like we all know that black family portrait. That it instills some sense of the black aesthetic. But when I watch a show like Blackish, it's so strange that the way people dress on the show, like the way the family dresses, you get a sense of their aesthetic and their personality, but their house themselves, like the house, it's kind of bland. Yeah. Like you it put, is. You could, any family could be in that home. And I'm like, where is there I mean, you see a couple of mudcloth pillows, but like, other than that, like, where is the aesthetic in this home? And I want to ask deeper questions like, is this a missed opportunity on the part mm-hmm. of the production design? Is that a deliberate decision? So those are, I guess, the question that I often try to interrogate as a thinker 
of design because so often that gets overlooked. You know, other people act like that's frivolous or it doesn't matter. And I'm like, no, it absolutely matters. If Mad Men can win Emmys for like their costume design because it is so integrated, we should absolutely hold that same standard for all the other programming that has diverse characters. Mm -hmm. And now another show I didn't even think about before, but now that you mentioned that about the home is Empire. Mm -hmm. You look at Empire, there's black art all up and through uh-huh. there. There's Kehinde Wiley on the walls. Yeah. There's diff- And even in the in the clothing, yes. you know, like you can definitely get a sense of the character and who they are and what might motivate or not motivate yeah. them at the time. Like, like I would tell people like during the first season of Empire, I'm like, you could always tell what Jamal's emotional state is by how he wore his scarf. Really? Like if the scarf was open, he was more open. If he didn't have a scarf, he was more closed. Like there was, it was like a security blanket kind of thing. That's brilliant, Maurice. See, I see. Go back and watch the first season of Empire. I'm gonna do it. Now I'm gonna do it. My head is blown right now. Like I can't handle it. <laughs> but that's what I'm talking about. Like it's it's that extra layer that is lended to a brown body that we often don't we we treat as though it doesn't matter, and it absolutely matters. And that's someone doing political work, too. Like, we can't ignore the production designer or the creative person who did that political work, who took that time to think, no, this person's character matters, but their blackness matters, too. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's important for us to celebrate and elevate as well, not just say, yay, the police aren't beating us this week. Or yay, you know what I'm saying? Like, we have to get to a place where we can't just simply be, we have to be happy living our lives, that's what thriving means, not just worried about whether or not I'm going to die in the arms of the police, because that's what everyone is comfortable talking about now. Like the ways, the various ways I deal with racism and, and gendered racism are far beyond whether or not I'm going to be hurt by the police. And we need to be able to talk about all those other things too comfortably as not just individual, you know, black designers out here in our own little universes and little Venn diagrams, but like as a large scope of creative professionals whether you're, you're Asian or you're Latino or you're white or you're poor, you know, whatever what your background is, you need to be able to have this conversation together. Right. Who are some of the people that have been your mentors? Earlier, I know you mentioned Lorenzo Wilkins, but have there been others that have kind of helped shape you to where you are today? That's a great question. Most of them have honestly been my professors at Howard, Dr. Starmanda Bullock, who basically created the design program at Howard University. You know, for years, Howard, at least if it was celebrated in the arts, it was celebrated in the traditional arts of painting, of theater, of music, of dance. But commercial art was something that was just not really celebrated and elevated. And she created that and founded that and understood that was important. So definitely uh, Dr. Bullock has been incredibly influential on me. Professor Mark Bartley, who was an adjunct professor, but was eventually tenured in full time. He was like the nerd, so to speak, of our design department because he he kind of felt like a desktop computer was like where you sculpted your layout. Like we really saw it that way. Like he really was able to take the tactileness and intuitiveness of traditional art and really put that same kind of joy and passion into sitting and working an illustrator. And like that you could actually do that, that that wasn't something that was separate, that you were you, you as a human as, and technology could come together and that was okay. So mm-hmm. he was definitely influential on me. Those are the folks that I immediately, they always, after year after year after year, they come to my mind. Lorenzo, Dr. B, as I call her, and uh, Professor Barley. Do you feel like you're satisfied creatively? Never, never, ever, never. And that may be okay. Like, <laughs> one of my favorite musicians is Robin. She's this Swedish artist who's mm-hmm. like, I just, I'm a rabbit, rabbit fan of her. Like she has this line that says, I won't stop asking until I die. That's <laughs> what I want by that. Like, I just don't feel like I've asked enough questions of the world and I've seen enough places and I've, come up with enough creative solutions that there's always some way to to be creative. That doesn't mean I'm left with sort of this existential crisis of desperation. I always enjoy the things I've accomplished. I actually really, I dig that stuff. But I then say, okay, you've done that. And today's Saturday. Mm-hmm. All right. What are you going to do? What are you going to sit on that? Are you going to rest on your laurels? No. I'm going to have a podcast with Maurice. No. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Like, I just got back from India and it was great. But like, hey, we're going to work on some incredible wall art that's going to be hand drawn. And it's going to spin like 37 feet wide. 
and it's going to be on the entrance of the first floor when people come in. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, if I kind of settled on, well, we did the one wall. No, it's not enough. It's not enough. Well, speaking of travel, where else would you like to go? Do you have a kind of prime travel destination in mind? Yeah, Cuba. Yeah, I'm narrowing it down to Cuba. After India and Australia and Brazil, I'm kind of tired of taking long flights past Indian Ocean. Like, mm-hmm. Those are exhaustive. I, and so, and I haven't been on a beach in a long time. Like the last beach I was at was in Brazil, and that just was incredible. So I was like, where can I go? A beach, but also has a, a country that has like a lot of history to it, a lot of political history, something that's interesting, not just like a resort. I'm looking at Cuba. And when I plan a trip, I usually take about a year or so to save my money and then plan out what it is I'm going to do and then look at the logistics and see what's possible. You know, that date may get close and I may decide, you know what, maybe I'll just go to like Dewey Beach. I don't know. But for right now, it seems like Cuba is the next place I'd like to go. But I'd like to also go someplace stateside, like Utah is a state I'd like to visit. Montana, I hear it's just one of the most beautiful states in the country, the people sleep on Montana. I, I'm thinking about. It. I don't know anyone that has, would put Montana as a <laughs> as a, a travel destination they'd want to go. Yeah, to. no one expects I, that. But out west, just because it's so expansive, you have to think about all the farmland and all the rivers and mountains. My former managing editor, she went to Montana. Her family regularly goes out there, and our our VP, she recommended it. She and I are both from Milwaukee, oddly enough, and she said that is she's Montana is one of the most beautiful states in the country, in her opinion. And she travels all over the country, so. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't sleep on Montana. <laughs> I, I had a journalist friend who went to Cuba in June, I believe. I think it was in June he went as, like, you know, part of a journalist, you know, press junket kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's where I'm retiring. He's like, I'm dying in Cuba. <laughs> it's, like there's, it's like, it is the most beautiful. He puts it as the most beautiful black place he's been to that's not africa what he's not been to brazil friend no i'm oh no no he hasn't been to brazil no i don't think he yeah has, no, that's that's i totally get what he's saying that's also why i like to travel is to get that understanding of like blackness is not regional it's not on your block it's not even in this country it's all over the world and yeah. it shows up in a variety of ways that it really warms your heart and makes you super super proud and going to brazil i definitely had that that experience of like i would die here i'm going to retire here i i absolutely get it what do you think you would have been if you weren't a designer that's a good question you know i have so many interests well i'll confess this when i was in high school senior year i thought i was going to be a dancer and then i found out you needed like 10 years and so i gave up on that i'll just stick to nightclub dancing or like dancing in my bedroom or whatever maybe a chef i love to cook i love the rigor i love the adrenaline you get from having to work really quickly. Mm-hmm. I could spend hours prepping, you know, a piece of fish, like a long piece of salmon or something, or I spend forever just dicing, you know, peppers or something. Like I have volunteered in kitchens where you have to do nothing but like chop onions. And I actually yeah. love that. Like, so I cook a lot for myself. I cook at home. And I do have this kind of, you know, eccentric lady dream when I'm like in my 60s where I, I have my own food truck and I you know, sell food from places that inspired me all over the world and here in Washington. And so that's something I probably didn't be a chef. I like the alchemy of cooking, Mm -hmm. of bringing together all these separate disparate ingredients and then putting them together in a way where you've got a completely different finished product than what you started out with. Yeah. Because to me, that feels like what the design process. Exactly. Yeah. You're you're doing research, you're pulling together assets, and then you're transforming it into something. Yeah. Something great and something different. So yeah, that's I've actually used that metaphor. I think I still use that metaphor somewhere on my bio at, at Trust, where it's something like it's using quality ingredients and to that point, it's bringing them all together into into guess something different. I don't like to use that word magic because that like nails on the chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> but it is that it's it's turning that alchemy. It's something. It's turning into something else, and that's incredible. What's the best advice that you've ever been given regarding what you do? Oddly enough, Massimo Vignelli, who, you know, he seems like if he was still alive, like I'd probably be picking a fight with him every other day. But in his, <laughs> in his documentary, Design is One, he said, make sure that your next client is better than your last client. Because if you don't, the clients will get worse and worse. They'll get more demanding. They'll start paying you less. They won't pay you on time. 
that'd be difficult. Make sure that your next client is better than your last. And I especially think that's important for women of color who are often asked to expect less. We're often asked to be happy with whatever we're getting. And that was some of the worst advice I ever heard. Um, Like, that's just going to put me more and more into poverty. That's not okay for me. I always privilege the business or it's rather to me, the business and the art, they're on the same level for me. Like they're never a battle. And so I always insist that uh, the next client will be better. And I've done fairly well with that. And so that's actually why, you know, this next shift to New York is, is taking so long because the Ed Trust has been so good to me here that like finding someone or something better than this is going to be a Herculean task. Like you need to be better than this place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just about to ask, where do you kind of see yourself in the next few years? In New York, in New York, ideally, you know, working with a team in a space in which we're doing the progressive work in a commercial space. So no longer a nonprofit, no longer you know, for a specific cause, but for commercial purposes. But we're still applying the same sociopolitical contexts. We're thinking about, say, if I were to work for a a video production company that focuses on design and interior design, but all of the people that they speak to that, you know, have beautiful homes are all white. I'm going to ask them, why aren't you talking to Latino, you know, people? Why aren't you speaking to black people? Why are you not speaking to Asian people? Let's find those people and find out how they also adorn their homes. Let's find those stories and let's appreciate how what they contribute. So that's an example of me trying to, again, apply all the thinking into like the actual work, but doing so in a way where we're actually getting something done. We're not just talking about it. Well, Sella, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. You can find me at InherentDesignBySellaLewis.com. You can also find me being a little snarky and humorous on at Home Slice is Nice on Twitter. You can also find my Facebook page, InherentDesignBySellaLewis.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, Sella Lewis, thank you. I'm loath to call this an interview it really felt like we had more of a a conversation that's perhaps you know for people that are listening we had to go through some technical difficulties <laughs> and i had some issues with my my voice but we've talked a few times yeah. so i think because of that what we had was really more of a conversation less of like me just kind of asking question 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 but there were just so many deep quotable things that you had to say i can really tell that you have this passion and this intrinsic kind of yearn for design and what it can do to transform the world. Like, it's not just like you said, making something pretty or cool in Photoshop. It's about how can I use the talents that I have to kind of move the conversation forward because everything is changing. You know, the only thing that is constant in the world is change. And because I'm a creator, because I'm a designer, what can I do to contribute to that? And I think that's something that all designers need to think about, regardless of where you're at in your design career, and your design journey, I think that's something to just be cognizant of and keep in mind, because as things change, you'll have to change with them. And so do you want to stay being the same old relic or dinosaur, or do you want to be contributing something that will move the conversation forward, that will exist in a contemporary space? So thank you again so much for coming on the show, for sharing your insights, This was great. This was really, really great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Maurice. I can't say that enough. This has been a wonderful opportunity. Like you said, an excellent conversation. And uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Sella Lewis and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sella and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care really deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like Origami, which is out now, actually, uh, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. I was just out there a few weeks ago, so I can definitely attest to the level of care and meticulousness that they put into just the Facebook product as a whole. Uh, Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. 
More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude might be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain names. Just search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show bump up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work that we're doing with the podcast and with the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.